Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're finishing up chapter 5 by looking at verses 31 through 33. You can find it on page 979 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. Now, I will never, ever, as long as I live, forget their response. Or should I say their lack of response? It was March 5th, 2011, and I had just pronounced Quinn and Sadie husband and wife. And as Quinn kissed his bride, there was nothing. It was silent as the grave. Now normally, if you've been to weddings, there's a lot of cheering and celebration that takes place at that moment. Everybody's giving their big hurrahs, and they're kind of all up in arms and, and excited about that. But no, it was dead cold. I actually thought someone had died. I mean, it was bad. There wasn't a cough. There wasn't a sneeze. There wasn't some baby crying in the back. There wasn't crickets chirping. There wasn't the rustling of papers. There was nothing, absolutely nothing, stone cold, silent. I actually looked around the lip-locked couple to see if people were still there. I thought maybe, maybe they had left. Maybe I just preached that long. I don't know. I mean, the wedding party, they were still there. They weren't moving. I could see Gretchen out of the corner of my eye. She wasn't clapping. So, you know, I just, it was one of those weird moments like in the movies where everybody's frozen in time and you're the only one that can move around and you're, you're over there and you're kind of pushing and poking at people and nothing's happening. It was that for me for like 10 seconds. It was freaky. Finally, I was able to kind of jumpstart them or get them out of this frozen state with a mighty fist bump and saying, come on guys, let's celebrate. Now why on earth is that? I mean, we, we by nature celebrate and rejoice in weddings. We make a big deal about weddings, especially here in America. We make huge, huge deals about weddings. I mean, think about it. Last few years, according to CNN and the net.com, the average amount spent on a single wedding is $28,000. I could have a car, I could have a wedding. You know? It's a big enterprise. $48 billion a year are spent on weddings. People love weddings. We, we make these huge deals about weddings. Girls, little girls dream about their wedding day as long as, you know, until they grow up and, and all of that. And, and we spend all this money. And, and let's face it, some people love weddings so much that they decide to have more than one. I mean, we, we're way too into weddings. And part of that's a good thing. I mean, we should rejoice. Our hearts should be filled with joy and excitement at weddings. But not at this one. At least not in that moment. And why is that? Well, it's because I told them what I'm about to tell you. You see, marriage is a gift from the Lord. It was designed by God for procreation for purity, for protection, for our pleasure, but most importantly, for the praise and the proclamation of the gospel in our lives. Marriage is more than a means for us not to burn with passion. It is more than a vehicle for companionship or sexual gratification. It is more than a stepping stone for us to be able to start a family and to have kids. It is its purpose is far greater than our comfort and our security and our entertainment and our earthly happiness. Our temporary, earthly, momentary marriages were designed to point us toward an eternal, heavenly, and everlasting union. A true and undying marriage of Christ and His church. A significant and foundational and wonderful and life-consuming marriages can be, they are not ultimate. There is better in marriage and there is worse. There are riches and there is poverty. There is sickness and there is health. There is love, there is delight, but in death do we part. 
our earthly unions will not last forever. Instead, they are meant to lead us towards what is. An eternal, covenant-keeping, never leaving nor forsaking, sacrificially loving, glorious union between Christ and His bride, the church. Crickets are chirping again already. If we're going to truly understand and cherish the gift of marriage and see it for what it is, for what God intended it to be, we can't view it through the lens of our culture. We have to view it in light of God's design and God's purposes for it. And few passages are more helpful for us than that than the one we're looking at this morning, Ephesians 5, verses 31 through 33. And what we're going to see in this passage from this Uh, from this text this morning, is that marriages display the glories of Christ through faithfulness to the true purpose of their union. Marriages display the glories of Christ through faithfulness to the true purpose of their union. And so let's read Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you see that you love your wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, marriages display the glories of Christ through faithfulness to the true purpose of their union. And if we're going to understand that, if we're going to grasp that, we're going to follow this pattern of this text laid out in 31, 32, 33. Uh, You can think of it like this, that first there's the foundation of marriage, second there's the consummation of marriage, and third there's the implication of marriage. Or if you like time, uh, you can think of it as past, future, and then present. That's the direction that we're going to go. Okay, so first, we need to look at the foundation of marriage. And the foundation of marriage is a covenant union of one man and one woman under God. We see that in verse 31. Now, marriage was designed by the creator of the universe, the one who made you, the one who sustains you, and he has designed it to be a covenant union between one man and one woman under his authority. As part of the very creation narrative at the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 2, God has set forward the very beginning, rooted in our history as mankind, that marriage is foundational. It is foundational to survival. It is foundational to growth. It is foundational to our well-being. It is foundational to the purpose of mankind. In verse 31 there, when Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, he's actually quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And in the larger section, this is the first wedding ceremony that we see in the Bible, in, in Genesis 2, 18 through 25. He's drawing our attention back to the foundation, back to the origin, back to God's design for marriage. And so if we're going to understand what Paul means and why Paul quotes this verse, we actually need to keep our fingers here in Ephesians chapter 5, and we need to flip back to Genesis chapter 2. And you can find it on page 2 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. And as you're flipping there, I want to remind you, a few weeks ago, when I was preaching on chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, I talked about Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God's purposes in creating us in His image. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit declared, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God had declared that he would give authority over all of his creation to mankind. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what he's saying here is that we were created in the image of God. And what he means by that is we were intended by God to reflect his nature, to reflect his character, 
to reflect His purposes and promises in the world. We were intended by God to reflect His relationships within the Trinity and with His creation. And we were intended by God to reflect His authority. That's all wrapped up in what it means to be created in God's image. And what he's saying here is that man and woman together best display the image of the triune God, among whom there is authority and there is submission in a loving, intimate, and joyous relationship. And so in marriage we see equality, we see dignity, just as we do in the Trinity, but we also see distinctions of roles with regards to authority and submission. Just like in the relationship between the persons of God. The Father has all authority. The Son submits in everything to the Father. And the Holy Spirit submits in all things to both the Father and the Son. And our relationships together in marriage were meant to display that. That's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. And so this passage is really, really important for us to consider when we think about marriage. Because in it, we learn how marriage is connected to our understanding of what it means to be created in the image of God. God is declaring why he is going to create and then why he is going to unite Adam and Eve, as he did in chapter 2, man and woman, and why he did it in the way that he did it. See, it was God's purpose to create man in his image, to reflect who he is and what he has done, his nature, his character, his relationships, his authority, and even, to a degree, his life-giving power. And how did he do that? Genesis chapter 2, he created them male and female. And he united them together in marriage so that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this is foundational for our understanding of what it means to be humans created by God. Now in chapter 2, God basically zooms in to give us his account of creation of man. And so what we read there is that he first formed uh, Adam. Now, God didn't have to do that. He could have easily formed them both at the same time. But God, for whatever reason, in his wisdom and his purposes, formed Adam first. And he breathed life into Adam's nostrils. Adam became a living being. God placed Adam in the garden, told him to tend it and to keep it. God gave Adam the law that you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Adam was responsible later to communicate that to his wife and to his progeny, right? So that was his responsibility. But then in verse 18, God says, It is not good that man should be alone. Well, God knew what he was doing when he created man. It's not like he figured it out after the fact. Like, oops, I, I made a mistake. I should have created Adam and Eve. I just created Adam. What was I doing? i got to fix this. No, that's not what God's doing. He did it intentionally. He says, no, it's not good for the man that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. This is God's design, God's purpose for his wife. And so what God does next, though, is rather than just kind of making Adam go to sleep, God first brings all the animals before Adam in this big, long assembly line. And, and Adam is to name all of these animals. And he names them because that's a sign of his authority over them. And so there they are. They're in this big, long line. And Adam's naming them. And he's like, okay, dog, cat, horse, chicken, zebra, elephant, on and on and on. But you get in there to verse 20. It says, there was not found a helper fit for him. That's whole purpose in this big assembly line was to establish his authority and to show him, listen, these aren't right for you. Okay? Dog's a great friend, but dog is not a wife. Okay? Keep that in mind. Filter kicked in. That was great. Um, so God causes then a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and God takes a, a rib from Adam's side, and with that rib he forms Eve. And then he presents her to Adam. Now, I can imagine what's going on here, right? Adam, God causes this deep sleep to fall on Adam. He's just totally out of it there. And so Adam just kind of wakes up from this big slumber, and he's all sleeping. He's like rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. He's like, okay, probably going back to this factory line here. So uh, where did I leave off? Okay, let's see. Lion, tiger, bear, oh. And suddenly Unchained Melodies starts playing in the background, you know, or Dreamweaver, or I don't know what's a modern one. 
XO by Beyonce. I don't know. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and Adam starts writing a love sonnet. He literally starts rhyming. He starts writing poetry right there. I mean, he goes from dog, cat, chicken to suddenly, I love thee, let me count the ways. Right? And you can read his love poem there in verse 23. And this is Adam's wedding vow. Adam declares, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Then God, who is officiating this wedding ceremony, says to Adam in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Does that sound familiar to us? Ephesians 5.31 And what God is saying here is that, Adam, I created her to be your helper. I knew from the beginning it was not good for you to be alone. But I want you to understand that it is not good for you to be alone. I wanted you to feel that. I wanted you to recognize that so you could appreciate the gift that she is. I have taken her out of you so that you might understand that the two of you are to become one because you are one. You have made your covenant vow to take her and to love her as yourself, bone of very bone, flesh of very flesh. And from here on out, as man pursues marriage, he will leave his father and his mother. He's going to leave his former manner of life, and he is going to cleave to his wife. They are to become one. And in that marital union, the two shall become one. They are not two individuals. They are not separate identities. They don't live his and her lives. It now is ours. And so, based upon my authority, as God of the universe, the one who has made you, the one who has sustained you, the one who has given you every good and perfect gift, including your wife, the one who has created and set apart a plan for your marriage, based upon my authority as God of the universe, I now pronounce you man and wife. You may kiss your bride. Verse 25 says, the result of their union was that they lived in complete intimacy. They were naked and unashamed. This is God's design for marriage. One man and one woman making covenant promises before God to leave their former individual, his and her lives, to cleave to each other, becoming one. Not just physically, but spiritually as well. This is the foundation to our understanding of marriage. This is foundational to what it means to be human. And Paul is calling us back to that. This is not something that we can redefine or make gender optional. This is not something that we can treat as a contract or a prenuptial between two individuals to be broken at our earliest convenience through no-fault divorce. Christ actually said that divorce was given as a concession for hard-hearted and unrepentant sin. But in the beginning, and he quotes this verse, which is to be our standard, it, divorce, was not so. This is not something that you can try to work in reverse. Try her on for size. Take her out and see what it's like to to try to live naked and unashamed apart from leaving my former manner of life and holding fast to my wife and becoming one flesh through our covenant union of marriage. We cannot redefine any of it. We cannot add to it. This is God's foundational design for the good of our being, and he's designed it this way. This is what marriage is meant to look like. A covenant union between a man and a woman. And this is foundational for us to display who God is. This is foundational for us to reflect what God has done. This is foundational for us to be who we were designed to be. This is foundational to the good and perfect plan of God for us both individually and as a human race. I can't pick and choose what I'm willing to believe and what I'm willing to do and what I'm not. God 
has designed marriage. And he has done it with a specific purpose. Now that's the meaning behind the quote. But why does Paul insert it here in Ephesians? He's taken all of that truth about the creation of man and the foundation of marriage, and he intentionally inserts it here in Ephesians where he has been helping us to understand what it means to be united in Christ. He's taking our understanding of marriage one step further. You see, in redemption, we're not simply saved from the consequences of our sin. We often think about it this way. Oh, I'm saved from death. I'm saved from hell. I'm saved from guilt and from shame. But it's more than that. In redemption, through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we are not only freed from our rebellion against God to be eternally reconciled to God, but in redemption, we are united with Christ. And because of our union with Christ, not only are we united to Christ, but through that union, we are united to each other as well. Again, he's pushing it one step further. And so for husbands and wives who are in Christ, we are not only united through the covenant union of marriage that we see in creation, but we are also united in redemption through our union with Christ. See, even more so. I mean, look at how verse 31 is connected to what precedes it. I mean, he's rattled on for four chapters establishing our union with Christ in His church. And He's gone into great detail to show us that we are one, and so we need to seek one another's good. We need to help one another to grow into maturity in Christ. And now He's taken that big principle, that big concept, that big idea, and He's started to work it down into the nitty-gritty of life of what this looks like. Guys, this is because you're united in Christ. This is why you are to speak the truth and love to each other and not... Not speak falsehoods. This is why you're not to be angry with one another. Not harbor bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor and malice against one another. But you are to be tenderhearted and kind and forgive one another. This is why you're to labor hard to provide for one another's needs. This is why you are to imitate God as His beloved children and love each other as Christ loved us. This is why you are to put away all sexual immorality and purity and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because you're connected. You're united in Christ. And he even breaks it down even to the level of how redemption changes our relationships. The relationships between husband and wife. And so he says in 5.22-30 through 30 that wives display the glories of Christ through faithful submission to their husbands. And husbands display the glories of Christ through faithfully loving their wives. This is the effect that our redemption has on our relationship to our spouses. This is the inference. This is the implication that our redemption draws us toward. Now look carefully there at verses 28 through 31. I want to try to highlight as much as I can this connection. It says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Get this. Just as Christ does the church. We are members of his body. Therefore, a husband shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do you see what he's doing there? He's saying, because Christ loves his church, his body, his bride, and because we are members of his church, his body, his bride, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Because Jesus loves his bride, and they have become one in redemption, therefore, leave your former life and unite in love to your wife. In creation, God formed Eve from the body of Adam in order to show Adam just how united they are, that they are bone of bone and flesh of flesh. But here... Paul changes the wording slightly to say that because Christ loves his body and you too have been united in him, you are now doubly united. Christ's relationship with his church is the pattern for your marriage. That's what you are holding up. That is what you are seeking to display. See, our 
our foundation for marriage is found not just in the covenant union that we see in the creation account in Genesis 2, but in the covenant union we see in redemption between Christ and His church. Those, both of those, have to be our patterns for marriage. That has to be what our unions are founded upon. One man and one woman united under God to display joyful, intimate union of authority and submission and an honoring, revering, and loving demonstration of Christ's covenant with His bride, the church. Our marriages are meant to display the marriage that we see both in creation and the marriage that we see in redemption. Now, already prior notions of marriages may be challenged right now. And more than likely, we're feeling uncomfortable by the thought that our marriages are meant to display the covenant unions that we see both in creation and redemption. Well, friends, it's about to get worse because we're coming to verse 32. And there we see the consummation of marriage, of Christ and the church. Now, many times when we hear this passage preached in weddings, it's sort of cute and fluffy. right? Uh, Christ in the church is your pattern for marriage. And if you want to live a blissful and happy married life, then you just need to pattern yourself after Christ in the church. They are the example that you want to follow if you're going to live a happy life. And if we're not careful... We look at Christ in the church as those little figurines on top of our wedding cakes. Cute, little, decorative displays of our wedding day that we hope our marriages will look like throughout their lives. We kind of know that they're not, but we hope that they are, and so we want to pattern ourselves after the little, you know, Ken and Barbie dolls on the top of our wedding cakes. As if Christ in the church is some sweet little token on top of our food and our, and our marriages are the real and ultimate thing. Well, in reality, this text says the opposite. Yes, we are to pattern our marriages after Christ in the church, but our marriages are not ultimate. Christ in the church is. Our marriages were intended to be the cake topper, not Christ in the church. Look at verse 32. Now, after quoting from Genesis 2.24, that the husband shall leave behind his former life and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, he says, listen, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Paul is saying this is a great mystery. This is intense. This is weighty. Quite literally, he says, this is a mega mystery. And what is a mystery? Well, Paul has already told us what a mystery is. He's used that word six times in Ephesians. And every time he's referring to a once hidden plan of God that has been revealed and fulfilled in Jesus. When he says mystery, he's not talking about some unsolved case that just really takes a sleuth like Sherlock Holmes to figure it out. What he's saying here is like, no, apart from God revealing this and helping us to see it by His grace, we would never understand this. But because of who Christ is and because of what He has now done, we now see that this is actually pointing to Him. That's what he's saying here. This formerly hidden but now revealed and understood as being completed in Christ. That's what this mystery is. And so what is Paul talking about? What does he mean when he says this mystery? What's the antecedent here? What's he pointing to? And why is it connected to this Old Testament quote in verse 31? Well, I think he's taking this Old Testament quote and he's applying it to something greater. The revelation of Christ and the church. What he's saying here is profound As the marriage union between husband and wife is, it points us to something far, far greater. Christ in the church. Now, what does that mean? Is Paul suggesting that grace 
that the grace the church receives from Christ is somehow being conveyed sacramentally through marriage? And that's what many Catholics believe. Well, no, because this argument moves from the marriage union to the union of Christ and the church and not the other way around. And then when we think about Ephesians as a whole, we see that we receive grace from God, not by doing certain things, but so that we can do certain things. The grace is received first, and then we walk in it. And so we don't get married in order to receive grace. He's saying, no, God gives us the grace so that we can get married and stay married. Okay, then, is this mystery referring only to Christ and the church by way of analogy? Like, these, there are these two independent ideas. Like, Paul was just kind of thinking, you know what? I want to convey the importance of Christ in the church. So what can I look at? What can I see? And he's looking all around. He's like, okay, I've got Christ in the church over here. Oh, wait, the union between husband and wife. Yeah, they're unrelated, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put an illustration together here. And so he's like, okay. There's some patterns here. There's some things we want to emulate here in our marriages so that we can reflect Christ in the church. And so if you look at the marriage union and what that's supposed to be, you can understand how you're supposed to be connected to the church and to Christ. Well, no, that's not what he's doing either. I mean, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. It goes much, much further. So how could you, Because, and here's what I struggled with. How could you really separate this quote of Genesis with regards to our marital union in verse 31 from the union of Christ that we've seen so far in Ephesians, but particularly in verses 29, 30, and then again in 32. What he's doing here is using this quote to support our union with Christ. Now, I just realized I got confusing for most of you, so let me try to put it simply. Marriage is a wonderful and significant spiritual union between a man and woman. But theologically, it points to something far greater. The institution of marriage serves as a foreshadowing. It serves as a type. It serves as a prefigure of a greater mystery that is revealed in the union of Christ and the church. And this is why Paul places this quote here. Because the union of marriage not only helps us to reflect and understand, but to to really live out more deeply the greater union of Christ in the church. That it is profound. As one commentator put it, a Christian marriage reproduces in miniature the beauty shared between Christ the bridegroom and the church his bride. And through it all, the mystery of the gospel is revealed. So what he's saying here is the union of Christ and church is the greater reality. It's the greater reality. Not that marriage is somehow insignificant, but it points to something that is far, far greater. We kind of get this practically. Um, you know, like moving from concepts to real life experience. Like, so for me, I, I could understand the concept of fatherhood. I could understand the concept of, of what it means to love a child as your own. But it... it it lived itself out in new and profound and amazing ways the first time I held Layden. And every day since then, I understand it more thoroughly, more experientially, more really as a result of that concept, uh, more really as a result of having kids. And so when you think about the fatherhood of God, I understand that concept far better being a father than not. And I think that that's part of why God designed marriage. Part, not all, part. So that we would understand far greater the union of Christ in the church. When God designed the original marriage, he already had Christ in the church in mind. And we know this from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Because he chose us from before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so Christian marriages, by the grace of God, not only display God's purposes for marriage, but they actually reveal the true marriage of Christ and the church. This is not some random analogy that Paul came up with. 
It has been an ongoing theme even throughout the Bible. You think about the Old Testament prophets. They often referred to God and His relationship to His people, Israel, as a marriage. Isaiah 45, Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23, Hosea 1 through 3. There you have God as the husband of His adulterous bride. And because of His never forsaken covenantal love, He will keep His promise to His true bride. And here in Ephesians, we see how God is living that out, how he fulfilled all of his Old Testament promises. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that marriage ultimately refers to Christ and the church, not you and your spouse. I hope this makes sense. Because we have bought into this Disney dream world notion of marriage where I'm the prince and you're the princess and we never grow old and we never get ugly and we live happily ever after ballroom dancing in this gigantic palace with lots of money and magical servants all around us to make our lives easy. And let's face it, if we're real honest with ourselves, that's what we want, right? That's what I want out of my marriage. And when it doesn't go that way, you know, my expectations are thwarted and I'm dissatisfied. We've made our marriages the ultimate source of our happiness, which they cannot be. And oftentimes we turn to God not to place Him first in our lives, but like those magical servants to use Him to try to make our marriages better. But friends, God does not exist to make much of marriage. Marriage exists to make much of God. To reveal, to show the world the glory of Christ and His church. We're repulsed by that statement Christ makes in Matthew 22, verse 30. He also makes it in Mark and Luke, by the way, just in case you want to know. When he says, for in the resurrection, for in eternal life with God, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We hate the fact that our marriages are temporary. It's, it's just so unromantic. I deal with this at every premarital counseling uh, session I, I deal with. And, and ladies, it often comes from you, just saying. Um, but friends, there's only one marriage that lasts forever. There's only one marriage that can truly fulfill our hopes and our dreams and our longings and our heart's desires. And it's not found in Genesis chapter 2. It's found in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. It's the same passage that I preached at Quinn and Sadie's wedding. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. The Lamb is Christ. His bride is the church. Our marriages exist to point us toward, to direct us to, to refer us and others toward the eternal union of Christ and the church. Our earthly marriages are meant to give us a longing for something that is greater than what is temporary and earthly, a mere trinket of a union between a man and a woman. As wonderful and as challenging as it can be, it is not ultimate. Marriage is meant to give us an image of the true and supreme fulfillment to which it points that is found only in the consummation, the fulfillment of Christ and His church. 
Friends, the ultimate purpose of our marriage is not seeking to find earthly satisfaction in sex or companionship or kids or comfort or security or any of the other blessings that come from marriage. And they are blessings. The ultimate purpose of our marriage is to display the covenant relationship of Christ and His church. Marriage was patterned after that. Our marriages were intended to be those little cake toppers or those snapshots of that greater eternal union. Marriage is not the end. Marriage is a means. A means to point us toward our true marriage. Now if you're here and you're seeking to find your life's fulfillment in marriage, you will inevitably be dissatisfied. You may have a great marriage, but if that's your heart's desire, if that's your longing, if that's what you're living for, it is sure to disappoint. If you set your heart and your identity in your marriage, what's worse is that you could end up missing the true end that it was always meant to point to. Now, if you're here and you realize that your marriage doesn't look a whole lot like Christ in the church, you are very welcome here. Because few really do. The solution for you is not to run home and try to develop a list of strategies to just go ahead and implement and and just kind of give it the veneer, give it the appearance of, of better reflecting Christ in the church. Well, we just need to go home. We need to strategize and we need to do this. It's just a matter of practical working on our communication or it's just a matter of kind of getting this routine or that routine or whatever. No, the solution is to go back and to go deep and to dwell and long and look at Christ in the church and to pray that that would be your longing. And if you're here, And you're single. Whether you're content in your singleness or you are struggling to be content in your singleness. Friends, this is your true marriage. This is what it all points to. This is where it's all heading. And that regardless of whether or not the Lord ever gives you a a spouse you, if you are in Christ, you are already married. You are already united. And so set your longing, set your desire, set your heart upon the consummation of that marriage. So no matter what the Lord gives you, whether you are married or not, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death. The Lord's earthly gifts throughout your life are meant to prepare you for that end. Christ and His bride. The marriage supper of the Lamb. This is why I got this response at Clint and Sadie's wedding. But friends, I do hope that it's a comfort for you. It was actually intended to be. So we've seen the foundation of marriage as a covenant union of one man and one woman under God. We've seen the consummation of marriage as Christ in the church. Now third, to the implication of marriage, a relationship of love and respect. Now hopefully by now we've already identified areas of application things we need to think about, things we need to apply. But looking back at the past, we've seen the foundation of marriage in creation and redemption, that our marriages are meant to be patterned after God's original design for marriage as one man and one woman covenanting before God to leave their former manner of life and to hold fast to each other, becoming one, a unity that is further compounded through our union with Christ. And so that's looking back at the past. 
And if we look to the future, to the consummation of our marriage, we see that God's design was for our marriage to point to, to direct us to, to lead us and others to its true fulfillment, which is Christ and the church. And so for all of those who are in Christ, that's our future. And we're called to display that here and now through our earthly marriages. But these are some pretty big concepts, right? Past and future. What does that look like practically for us in the present? Verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage that is modeled after God's design and purpose for marriage with the goal to display that future consummation of Christ in the church will be displayed as the husband loves his wife as himself and the wife respects her husband. Now, if you've been with us, you know we've seen these concepts already, right? In, in verses 22 through 24, we saw that wives display the glories of Christ through faithful submission to their husbands. This is... One of the ways that she serves Christ is she acknowledges these roles of headship and submission that God has designed in creation as she seeks to display the unfolding work of the gospel in her life. And then in verses 25 through 30, we saw that husbands display the glories of Christ through faithfully loving their wives. They are to love their wives as Christ loves their wives, sacrificially, so that he might lead her and direct her to the one who saves and sanctifies her, The husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies, sustaining them by spiritually and physically protecting and providing for them. And so why does Paul mention it again here in verse 33? I mean, he's just talked about this. Is he just kind of wrapping things up before he moves on to what comes next? Well, yes, but I think that there's more to it than that. I think there's a significant structure here in verses 22 through 33. And if you've been in our hermeneutics class before or you've been in our Old Testament survey class, then you would recognize what I'm about to say, that I think that this is a chiasm, right? This literary form that argues, it builds up to a crescendo, and then it resolves again back to its original starting point. So what you see here is in verse 22 through 24, is mirrored with the second half of verse 33. Wives submit, wives respect. Okay, Then you begin to move upward. And so in verses 25 and 30, mirrors the first part of 33, that husbands are to love their wives. And then at the middle, you have the, com- the, the climax, which is the main idea, verses 31 and 32, which is the foundation and consummation of marriage. Right there, where it's all intended to go, Christ and the church. And that's the main idea. That's the main point. It's building, 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 but then it resolves back down. And so verses 31 through 32, which we've already seen, that's the main idea. That's the main emphasis. That's what he's really trying to communicate to us. And that explains why Paul starts then in verse 33 with the word, however. He's saying, listen, the main idea that I want you to understand is that this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, in any case, nevertheless, even though the consummation of marriage should be the ultimate goal and motivator of your marriage, since that is future, let me remind you again of what you're called to do in the present. And so this time he addresses husbands first. And again, following the structure If verses 31 and 32 is what's most important, then 25 through 30 and the first half of 33 is of second importance. This is the next highest priority. So husbands, you're to be first in this, which makes sense because you are called to be the leader. Because husbands love your wives. This is a direct command that he gives to each and every husband. Let each one of you. This is not for some. This is for all of you. Saying, Chet, love Phyllis as yourself. Caleb, love Kelly as yourself. Jeff, love Gretchen as yourself. Eric, love Rachel as yourself. Jason, love Casey as yourself. And on and on and on and on. Sacrifice yourself for her. Your wants, your desires, your loves, your life for hers. 
just as Christ gave himself up for his bride. Point her to her true husband, to her true head, to her true hope, so that Christ may present her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Labor to sustain her life and her soul by nourishing and cherishing her, just as Christ does the church. For this short life, you have been appointed her head. You have been appointed her leader, her authority. And this is how you are called to love her, as Christ loves his bride. And to each and every wife, God gently says, I have placed you under the care of your husband. Submit to him. Follow him. At times, it may be hard to trust him, but you can trust me. For he is not your king. He is not your redeemer. He is not your savior. Respect him. Honor him. And revere him as you would Christ. That word respect here is the same one used in verse 21. How we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so, honor your husband with your words and thoughts and actions. Pray for him and encourage him. By doing this, you glorify me. That's what God says to you. My friends, We could say a whole lot more. But let me just sum it up by saying there is a whole lot more at stake in your marriage as a Christian than just your earthly happiness. God's glory is on the line in your marriage. God's glory is on the line in you manifesting and you're showing and you're expressing the foundation of marriage and its consummation in Christ and the church. And so by God's ever-present grace to strengthen us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, respect your husbands. For when we do, our marriages will display the glories of Christ through faithfulness to the true purpose of their union. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the beauty and wonder of your word. Lord, I pray that this text wouldn't be a a reason to lament, but a reason to rejoice. I pray that we would think about the union of marriage in new and profound ways in light of your word that it would change the way we think about our relationships, that it would change our hearts towards our spouses, and that you would give us the strength to display your glory in our lives, in our desires for marriage, and our desires in marriage. In Christ's name we pray.